This morning, we're going to kind of finish up this Advent conspiracy thing that we've been working through uh, based upon a book that was written a bunch of years ago called The Advent Conspiracy, and uh, a bunch of pastors on the West Coast actually wrote the book, and um, we've used it in the past, and we're using it again, and though I've, as I've looked at the notes from last year, they seem a little bit different. I think I've come into a different place where I am in my spiritual walk, and, but it's still basically the same thing. And what I want to look at today is an entire chapter of Isaiah. Now, we visited this chapter about five weeks ago when we talked about, when we introduced the Advent conspiracy. But now we're going to pick apart this chapter kind of section by section and see what God is saying to his people through the prophet Isaiah. So I'm going to begin by praying, and then we're just going to dive right into the word. Lord, I want to thank you for your grace and your mercy and the love that you have for us. Thank you for Jesus, for Christmas, for the celebration. Thank you that we, as as people, You've blessed us enough where we can give gifts to other people, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would think, rethink about our gift giving, that we would give more personal gifts, intimate gifts, that we would give the gift of ourselves. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've caused their word to be written, and thank you that it's relevant to us thousands of years later. And Lord, we know that If we're still around as a human race, it will be relevant thousands of years in the future. Lord, I ask you to to be with us this morning, to meet us wherever we are as individuals. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. All right. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 and 2. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. So Isaiah has been sent by the Lord, and he's been sent to bring a message to God's people. And he's not to go, you know, person by person. He's not to just kind of do it quietly, go over for dinner and mention, hey, you know, I think this is what God is telling us. This is what God is telling you. God wants him to get to get rambunctious, to get noisy. God wants him to shout it out, to grab people's attention, to be like a trumpet or the the shofar. Now the shofar in the Hebrew tradition was blown to to get people's attention. When it would be blown, then, then people would stop what they were doing and they would look and they would wait to see what is happening. This is kind of the, the posture that God wants Isaiah to take. Shout it out. Let people know that you have something important to say and it's urgent. Speak with some urgency. This is not just a willy-nilly, hey, message. God wants them to know that he has something to tell them and what he wants them to know is you are in outright rebellion. 
You have missed it. You have missed the point. You have lost your way. Your heart is far from me. You people are in outright rebellion. The things that I've called you to, you're just, you're not getting it. You're missing the point. And what's really interesting to me is, is chapter 2 of this verse, because it says, uh, this text, for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. The people that are in rebellion, the people that are in sin, they're not some other nation, some other people that are worshiping false gods, pagan gods. These are, these are Yahweh's people. They know who God is. And they, are, they seem eager to know him. They seem like they're trying to get in touch with him. They seem like they want to, they have this slight desire to know or to worship or to follow who God is. Maybe, maybe they've, they've, uh, they understand the call of Isaiah 55 when, when Isaiah says, seek the Lord. Maybe that's what they, they think they're doing or they're at least trying to do. Because they, they have this understanding as God's people that if they don't do certain things, if they don't worship and come before the Lord, then they're going to miss out on the Lord's blessings. Maybe even come under his wrath. And they really don't want that. But the Lord tells them, you are in rebellion, my people. You are in rebellion. They look like, operative phrase, they look like a people eager and after going after God. And so I think we have to ask ourselves a question. Can we engage in our religion? Can we engage in our religious activities and miss God? Can we do all of the religious things that we think we should do and come to church and sing the songs and raise the hands and, and, and look very religious on the outside and miss the points, miss who God is? Well, if this is not your first time here, then you know the answer to that is yes, because we talk about that very often that you can do all of the religious things that you think you need or should do and miss the entire point of who God is. And that's what Isaiah, or the Lord, is calling his people out on. And you know, I think, I think that should bring a little bit of a pause in our spirit. I think it should do a little a heart check for us because, wait, 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 so... so so what you're telling me is just because I don't go to ch- just because I go to church means I'm good? I'm not good? Let me say that again cuz I confuse myself. Just because <laughs> just because I go to church it means I could I'm in danger of maybe not being right with God? Yes. I think that made sense. At least in my little mind it did. There's a st- <laughs> uh, There's a story in Matthew chapter 23 and uh, Jesus is yelling at the Pharisees. And he tells them, he says, you know, you guys, you're tithing, you're tithing mint and dill and cumin. And, and it's, this, this, uh, it's a very external way of honoring and worshiping God. He goes, but you're missing the weightier part of the law. You're missing, you're missing justice and mercy and faithfulness. Yes, you should be tithing. But you can't miss these other things. Because these, the other things are our interior posture of our hearts. 
And if all you're doing is the outside stuff, you've missed it. You gotta, yes, you got to do that stuff too, but it has to come from inside of your heart. Justice is something that burns within the soul. Faithfulness is something that burns within the soul. Mercy is something that burns within your heart. And when they burn there, then your life becomes externally, it radiates those things out. They, too, have missed the big picture. And these people here, they're asking, they're asking for God to do something. <laughs> they ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. And, and the funny thing is, and it's funny, funny, not funny, haha. If, if God was to carry out just decisions, they would be in a lot of trouble. They're asking God, come on, Lord, let's, let's get her done here. Carry out your righteousness, not knowing that it would be done to them. They would be suffering the wrath of God. And so if we kind of fast forward all this into 2013, and, and you know, many times I will hear Christians talk about, man, I, I, just, I just wish Jesus would come back. I, I just, I cannot wait for the Lord to come back. And, and I ask, you think you're ready? I mean, I mean, do you think you're really ready for him to come back? Is your heart ready for the second coming of Christ? Because if it's not, uh-oh. And so then the chapter continues. These are the people speaking to God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Okay, just... I won't charge you for this one, but if you have to go to God, why have we humbled ourselves and you have not seen it or noticed, you're probably not so humble. All right, just throwing it out there. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Now the people, they have some chutzpah here. That's, that's a Hebrew word. They have some chutzpah because they are calling out God. They are complaining to God about God. They are complaining that, you know, we're doing all of this stuff, God, and you're not doing anything. And we're just a little aggravated about that. And it really, it really shows what's in their heart. It really shows what, what they think their religion really is. That they have it all together. They're doing everything right. And God is just kind of, he's kind of slacking a little bit. We have fasted and we've humbled ourselves, but, but you have not noticed it. Fasting, they're fasting so they can get something from God. They want something from him. And guess what? God doesn't play that game. God's not going to give in. He doesn't pay attention to their fasting and they're whining about it. Wah. We're going hungry and you're not noticing. Wah. I'm not sure what the Hebrew what wah would be, but I think it would be the same. Wah. You haven't noticed us and, and, and we're doing all of this for you. See, they're operating on this very simple equation. We do, and then God, you're supposed to do for us. 
God, God we, we, we make our deposit into our religious bank, and then you pay us some dividends. That's kind of the way this whole thing is supposed to work, God. And obviously the Lord is not keeping up his end of the deal. Because what they want is something for themselves. They are trying to manipulate the Lord to do what they want him to do. They are trying to manipulate the Lord's blessing from him. But we can't judge. We can't judge them because we do it all the time. Now, please hear my heart in saying this. Many people come before the Lord broken and asking him for something, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. To come before God and just pray, God, please, and, and, and please, whatever it is, and it's from the heart, and it's a groaning, and it's from a place of brokenness. But other times we go to the Lord, and I can imagine he just laughs at us, like, really? And, and so we pray to the Lord for, let's just say a new Harley Davidson, okay? Let's just throw, it is Christmas, and so here I am praying to the Lord that he would give me a new, I've been praying a long time for this, but now wait, now if I really want God to hear me, and I haven't tried this yet, but I might, I should add fasting to my prayers. Because fasting, like we've said before, it supersizes the prayer. And if I add fasting to praying, I think I'm getting 2014 lowrider, man. I think I'm getting something good. He's got to hear me for fasting, right? I've added that to my prayers. Too often, too many people, we, we think that just by fasting and praying that God is going to give us exactly or anything that what we want, and that's going to get him off his tuchus. And, and he, then he's going to come through for us. We'll get his attention but for many Christians, fasting is not the spiritual discipline to deepen your relationship with the Lord. Fasting becomes a way to try to spiritually manipulate the Lord into doing what you would have him do. And, and, and just so you know, he, he doesn't, he's not manipulated easy. I might have done it once, but and I think that was just grace. And so the people complain, we're fasting. You're not doing anything. The fast, Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, was for the purpose of realizing the seriousness of our sin and, and, and bring us to a place of repentance. But the people here, they've missed the point. Repentance is not something that we do so we can get something from God or get him to do things for us. Repentance is an expression of our hearts that says, we have been wrong." We have gone our own way. We have forsaken the ways of the Lord. And he is always good. And he is always right. And he is always just. And we are not. And Lord, I am sorry. And I want to change my way. That's repentance. Whether or not he gives us anything at all, that's what we're called to. To repent before the Lord but they seem to think they can manipulate God by their fasting and praying to get God to do something for them. They want him to fulfill their own very selfish desires, their own selfish things. Everybody wants a blessing. And so they work. They do these religious works, but their heart is far from God, and they do all this external stuff. 
you know, religious works without the love of the Lord in our hearts bring us into a, a, a religious slavery, if you will. Their fasting has resulted in oppression. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Sometimes our religious behaviors, praying and serving and, and fasting and singing, they could be a little bit self-indulgent. Because it really is sometimes about us. And not all of us. But there are some who engage those things to kind of show how spiritual we really are. And we use that as a, as a bar to judge how spiritual other people are. Like if you only raise your hands this much in church, you're only half spiritual. Up here, oh, you must really love God. The people down here, yeah, not so much. If the Lord doesn't put raising your hands in your heart, that doesn't mean that if you don't, you are not worshiping him with all your heart. But God is calling his people to something very different than just an external thing that's self-indulgence. If you're going to deprive yourself, the Lord says, why don't you do it, do it for the sake of the needy and the helpless and the oppressed, not for your own religiosity, not for your own selfish desires, not to get me to do something for you. See, it's the very nature of God that he would give of himself to people who can never repay him. Everyone in this room could never repay the Lord our God for the gift of Jesus Christ that he's given us. And the Lord calls us to do the same, that we would give ourselves to people that can never repay us. Isaiah, the Lord is telling through Isaiah that if you want to you stop something, why don't you stop oppression? Why don't, why don't you stop hunger? I mean, you go around and, and, you're, and you, you go around without food when there's people around you that are going hungry. And for us, it's, it's a town away. What's the purpose of the fasting? What's the purpose of your religion? And in verse 7, the end of the verse, it, it's, it's, this is not a suggestion. It's not like, yes, it kind of feels like a rhetorical question, but God is saying it, it's about sharing your food with the hungry. It's about helping the wanderer. It's about when you see the naked to clothe them. It's about not turning away from your own flesh and blood. People in your own family who need help. It's about not turning away from them and coming alongside of them, even if they're the ones that are the pain in the butt in your, in your family. 
that you would come alongside them and show them the love of God. That's religion. That's faith that finds itself in the, in the, in the recess of our hearts and it's expressed that way. And then it goes on. I told you, we're going through a whole chapter. This will never happen again, but. <laughs> then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. When we make the decision to make everything about me, about us, not only, not only just things on, on the outside, but, but, but especially our faith, when we want to keep control because I know best, the result of those decisions bring, they bring darkness. And it's, and it's an internal darkness in the t- interior And it's also an external darkness. When we hold ourselves as the priority, we enter into falsehood instead of the truth. We choose the creation over the creator. We choose the darkness over the light. Isaiah is telling these people, you don't know God at all. Because you've made it all about, all about you. And the Lord says, why, why would I show up for you? Why would I come to you? But those who reflect the character and the nature of God, those who who open themselves and surrender themselves to the character and the nature of God, allowing the Holy Spirit to transform their hearts, and then they live from that interior posture, the Lord will never forsake us, leave us. And our righteousness will go before us. And that's something that's very important because this is talking about the righteousness of God and the righteousness of God in us because without, without Jesus Christ, we have no righteousness. There is nothing in us. But through Christ, we have the righteousness of God and the righteousness of God that lives in our hearts transforms us and creates in us a lifestyle that we live. And those deeds, those actions will go before us. It's God's righteousness through his grace that gives us the ability to live in the way that he's called us to live. God desires for, God, um, how do I say this? God wants to save us from us. God wants to save us from ourselves. That we would no longer focus on, on me on we, on I, 
that we would, we would have a genuine concern for other people. And that only comes from when we surrender ourselves, our hearts to the Lord and what he would have for us. And there's three things that he's talking about in this verse, in these verses, that we would remove the yoke of oppression. And I'd say all kinds of oppression, social, economic, political, spiritual, emotional, physical, that we would be restorers to people. And we would begin to eliminate those things. And that we would stop pointing the finger at others. Malicious talk. They should be doing more than what they're doing. They should be doing this. No, maybe you should be doing more than what you're doing. I, hypothetical, I'm not, I'm not pointing anybody. I'm not pointing any fingers. The oppressed and the poor, oppression and poverty, they're, they're never going to stop unless we, the rich, and, and we are rich, unless we, the rich, we stop seeing them as objects of scorn and contempt and just, just pitiful victims. The Messiah complex in a Christian is one of the most ugliest things I've ever seen. Like, you are going to go save the world. The oppressed and the poor and the broken, they are people created in the image of God, just like us. And we share with them that brokenness. And we share with them the pain and the hurts and the disappointments. And we share with them, yes, we even share with them the bad choices that we all make. And they have worth and they deserve dignity. God has created them in his image. And then he says to spend ourselves on, the be- on behalf of the hungry. Interesting enough that this statement comes from the, in the context of when they're fasting. So they're fasting, they're upset, and God says, why don't, why don't you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry? See, they're showing their devotion to God by fasting. Now this is, I would say this is third world fasting and not our first world fasting. See, we have this first world fasting, and this is just my own little rant, and, and you can disagree with me, but if you write me an email, I won't answer it. And, but this is, this is just me. Um, I'm fasting every Friday from chocolate and ice cream for the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm putting my, I am putting my cell phone down. I am not listening to my iPad for two days every week for the Lord. I guess, okay, maybe, but they didn't have iPods. They're fasting from food, from something basic, a basic need to show what they've believed to show devotion to God. But it's only this external thing. It's just the work of religion. And God tells them, I would rather have you show your devotion to me by feeding the hungry. Not just making yourself hungry. By, by being others-centered. Fasting I, I believe that we should fast as, as a Christian community. I believe all wholeheartedly in it. And, and it's, it's a discipline that I just don't do enough of. Um, but it has to be done from the right heart. And fasting is a, a very self-centered thing. It's, it's a desire for you to grow deeper in your relationship with the Lord. There's absolutely nothing. It's a beautiful thing. It's sacred. It's holy. But they have missed the point. And God, and God says, be 
others-centered, not self-centered. I would rather have you pour your souls out into ministry for other people that have been broken in this life, to the oppressed and the poor and the hungry, instead of just thinking, believing that you are self-righteous. Verses 11 and 12. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and you will strengthen your frame. He will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will rise up the age-old foundations and you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. I think if I ever wanted the Lord to give me a new name, it'd be one of those two. It was their sin that destroyed their city, the darkness of their heart. And it's the righteousness of God, if they allow it to come into them, that will restore them, restore their city. Our collective sin as humanity is what has broken our world. And, and sin, sin is the Internal, it's an interior posture of rebellion against God. Sin, sin is we take something in our life and make it the most important thing and God comes second or third. That's, that's sin. And all of the action we see from that, that's the consequence of sin. But sin is making something other than God the most important thing in our lives. And because we have done that, the world is broken. And we have things like addiction and poverty and, and, just, and just crisis throughout the world. Epidemics, pandemics. The very things that we go to CVS to buy so we can feel better, people in the world die from them. People don't drink clean water. And we take advantage of it by going up to the sink and then complain, oh, this doesn't taste good. I need bottled water. I do the same thing, believe me. Southington water tastes like it comes from a hose. That's not good enough for my family. Mm-mm. We got a Poland Springs, what it means to be from Maine, and we got the whole, and, uh-huh. But we take those things for granted. God's plan is to restore all things, to make all things new. And here's the beauty of it. That plan includes his people. That plan includes us. That we would go out into the world and that we would be repairer of broken walls. And maybe, yes, in the physical, but how many people walk around just devastated and broken on the inside and we don't even know it because we're too busy to take the time to find out. That we would be called restorer of streets with dwellings. I don't even know what that means, but it just sounds really cool. (laughs) God gives us the dignity to fix what we have broken through grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we come to the end of the chapter... If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight 
and the Lord's holy day honorable. And if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I think the problem with people, I believe the problem with people um, through all times has been our, our, self, our need for self-gratification. Like, I want my desires fulfilled. And, and you know, I'm, I'm like everybody else. There's things I want and, and there's things that I, I go and I try to, to get. But the danger is that if that's all we're looking at, other people will take a low priority in our life. The serving of other people will take a low priority. And God is saying, surrender your desires to me. Be others-centered and you will find me. When you give away your life, it's then that you will find it. If you give up the throne, it is then you will, be, you will receive the crown. Live your life on behalf of of others. And so that's kind of Isaiah 58 in a, in a nutshell, very quickly through. Now maybe some of you are thinking, oh, silly dear pastor, why do you, why do you bore us with this Old Testament dribble? We are under the new covenant of Jesus Christ of grace and mercy. And this, we are no longer under the law. And I would say to you, oh, nay, nay. Let's look at the words of Jesus in Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You gotta say it that way. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
We've been wrestling with the question, can Christmas still change us? Can, can Christmas still change the world? Some estimates say that to feed the world and to give the entire world clean water, it would take somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 billion to do that, give or take a few billion. This year, in the United States, Americans will have spent just around that same amount, maybe a little less, on ice cream. Can Christmas still change the world? Can Christmas still change us? See, when we enter into the Advent story, to the Christmas story, I mean, really enter in, that we would surrender ourselves, our hearts, to the Lord our God. Something begins to change, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit that begins to change us. And, and things just begin to drop off and go away, and we begin to have different interests and different priorities. And it's nothing that we can muster in our own beings. It's the power of the Spirit transforming a man or a woman's heart. And then we can be agents of change for the kingdom of God. God, God is on the move. I believe he is on the move. And when Jesus' followers, when we serve the poor, when in the oppressed, in the weak, in the marginalized, in, in the sick, and we give in generous ways, the Jesus story is told over and over and over again. That's the way we tell the story. And we begin to see the Holy Spirit transform lives of not only us, but the people that we come in contact with. The church needs to start being the church. I have read and heard way too many complaints that we need to get back to being a Christian nation. I'm not sure we've ever really been a Christian nation. And, and you could disagree with me and that's okay. Again, no emails, I'll ignore them. And so, because of this mindset, we, we, we evangelicals, we complain about it. And so the conservatives, we blame the liberals. And the liberals just point their finger at the conservatives and say, you're, well, much too conservative. And the churches start blaming other churches because those churches don't act like the other churches do. And then denominations fight other denominations. And then denominations fight within the denomination. And it just all gets really ugly. And Christians, we're nervous that we're, we're, we're afraid that we're going to become a Muslim nation because, oh my goodness, Muslim, the Muslim religion is on the rise, and I think the Muslims that live in the United States, they're kind of worried that we're going to become a Christian nation because guess what? Our history with them hasn't been so good. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not joking about these things. I'm not saying that I'm not a, a universalist. I believe Jesus Christ is the way, is the only way. But we get caught up in the stupidest of arguments Making abortion illegal or keeping it illegal doesn't make us a Christian nation. Outlawing gay marriage doesn't make us a Christian nation. Getting rid of liberal politicians, trying to get a Republican president, it doesn't make us a Christian nation. More Christian bands, more Christian t-shirts, more Christian books, it doesn't make us a Christian nation. 
We'll become a Christian nation when Christians decide to start living as a Christian. It's as simple as that. I'm not saying you shouldn't go out and vote. Yes, be involved in politics. Be, be, all those things are a good thing. But it's not the most important thing. We're worried about the government and our families are falling apart. We're worried about changing the world and relationships between father and, and children are falling apart. Between mothers and daughters are falling apart. What if we just started living as a Christ follower in our homes? Loving the way God calls us to love in our homes. How can we move out farther if we're all messed up right here? We'll become a Christian nation when Christians begin to surrender their hearts to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And allow the Holy Spirit to to indwell in them and transform them from the inside out. Then you'll see things change. Nobody keep mad at us for feeding the poor. Nobody, nobody Nobody can be mad at us for fighting injustice or visiting the sick or visiting people in prison. Oh, look at them. They're feeding the poor. That doesn't happen. No one can argue with the life that is lived in generosity. If they do, they're stupid and they have issues. I mean that in all love, but they are. The church has become irrelevant because Christians have become irrelevant. What if? We decided that we were going to love all people. All people. The people who disagree with us, the people who laugh at us, the people who have uh, believed different things than we believe. What if? What if? Would Christmas still change us? Can it? Can Christmas still change the world? I believe it can. But it can't just be for a few weeks in December. We have to live the incarnation every single day. Lord, I want to thank you for your word, for the grace of it, and even for the, uh, the weight of it sometimes. God, I pray that you would change our hearts, that we would not fall into empty religion, but that we would embrace the Holy Spirit, the Lord, our giver of life, that would we receive, we would receive new life, and then that we would just give it away, that it would bubble up and boil up in us so so intensely that we just can't keep quiet and we have to do for others because we recognize what you have done for us. I pray Christmas would just not be about a day or a month but that we would realize, your church would realize the gift that you have given for all people, for all times, 
but unto us born in this world, in the city of David, a Savior. It's Christ the Lord. Amen. Those of you who are traveling for Christmas, have a very Merry Christmas. Travel safe. And remember, if the eggnog tastes funny, it might have a little something, something in it, so be careful. Those of you who are staying around, uh, I'll see you Christmas Eve. Um, Have a great last couple days. I love you guys.